0: Physics world.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Physics World weekly podcast, which is sponsored by Pfeiffer Vacuum. I'm Hamish Johnston, and in this episode, we're going to meet members of a new charity that is challenging the space industry's attitudes to diversity. And we'll also discover why the meat of European wild boar has anomalously high levels of radioactive cesium. But first, a message from our sponsor. We would like to thank Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this podcast. The company is one of the world's leading developers, manufacturers, and suppliers of vacuum solutions. Pfeiffer Vacuum has been producing innovative end-to-end vacuum solutions since 1890, and over the years has collaborated with some of the largest and most ambitious scientific experiments. The support of young scientists in cutting-edge research is of great importance to Pfeiffer vacuum. X-ray satellites are developed and tested in space simulation chambers. This happens in large vacuum recipients in which space conditions are simulated. Vacuum products from Pfeiffer Vacuum meet the highest quality and engineering standards and provide vacuum solutions precisely tailored to the needs of scientists and customers. Find out more at pfeiffer-vacuum.com. First up, I'm joined by Physics World's Margaret Harris to talk about the wild boar paradox. Hi, Margaret. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Now, Margaret, I have to admit that I've never heard of this paradox. I believe it has something to do with the wild pigs that inhabit the forests of Europe. But what's the connection to physics?
2: Okay, so to understand the connection to physics, you have to go back to the aftermath of the disaster at the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl which is now in Ukraine. When that reactor melted down and exploded in April 1986, it spread a plume of radioactive material all over Europe. Now, the worst affected areas were, of course, in Ukraine itself and also in Belarus, but there were also smaller areas of relatively heavy fallout in other places due to the prevailing winds and some badly timed rainfall. And this fallout led to animals in those places becoming contaminated with radiation, which is bad news. The less bad news, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, is that many of the radioactive elements involved in the contamination have relatively short half-lives. Specifically, radioactive cesium-137, which was one of the most common products of the meltdown, has a half-life of about 30 years. So now that it's been, what, like 37 years since Chernobyl? You'd expect the radioactivity to be less than half what it was in April 1986. And that's true for most animals, but it's not true for wild boar. Their meat is pretty much just as reactive now as it was 30 years ago. And that's what the wild boar, boar paradox is, because people didn't understand why this was the case.
1: Right. And, but, but now, researchers in Germany and Austria, they, they seem to have solved the mystery. And um, it, it's connected to the animal's love of a, a certain type of fungi. W- what have they discovered?
2: Well, they looked at the isotope ratios of cesium-137 to cesium-135. Cesium-135 is also radioactive, but it has a very long half-life. I think it's uh, over a million years. Uh, And crucially, uh, reactors and nuclear weapons explosions produce different amounts of cesium-135 compared to cesium-137. So they looked at this signature. And what they found is that actually the, the radioactive cesium in wild boar was indicative of contamination from weapons testing. And weapons testing, which started obviously in 1945 and reached a peak in the early 1960s, uh, that is atmospheric weapons testing, um, seems to have been sort of percolating down through the surface of the soil. Wild boar like to root around and eat fungi that are buried fairly deep underground, um, especially in winter when they don't have other food sources. And it turns out that those those, those fungi have basically spent the past 75 years or so slowly absorbing radioactive cesium, initially from these atmospheric weapons tests and only more recently from the Chernobyl disaster. So while the levels of radioactivity at the surface have been going down, just as you expect with half-lives, there seems to be a certain degree of replenishment going on at the level where the fungi grow. And that gets, um, the phrase is, bioaccumulated into the wild boar that then eat the fungi.
1: Right, I see. And um, I I think in, in large parts of europe um hunting wild boar is very popular and uh, and and the meat is a delicacy so is this bad news for people who who like to eat wild boar does, does this radioactive cesium put it off limits in terms of human consumption
2: it does i mean radio- being radioactive is presumably not that great for the boar themselves either But yeah, it's not great for the hunters who'd like to eat or indeed sell their boar meat because they they can't legally sell it if it has higher than a certain level of radioactive cesium in it. Uh, And actually, in some areas, it's not good for the wider ecosystem either because wild boar can really tear up the ground when they're feeding. So if their numbers get too high because they're not being hunted or otherwise having their population controlled by other means, that has knock-on effects for other species too. So I guess it just really shows what a long shadow the era of widespread atmospheric nuclear testing has had on our world today.
1: Wow! Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting, Margaret. And of course, this is uh, I suppose an ongoing concern in that part of the world where you've got um, another nuclear reactor that's sort of on the on the front line in the in the Ukraine war. So um, let's hope that uh, that things don't get even worse for um for the wild boar and indeed the people of uh, of central europe you can read more about the wild boar paradox in an article by margaret that's on the physics world website just look for the headline fallout from nuclear weapons testing explains the wild boar paradox of radioactive meat thanks margaret yeah sure hamish Space Pride is an international charity that celebrates the vibrant LGBTQIA community in the global space sector. Space Pride is challenging the space industry's attitudes to diversity, as the science writer Anna Deming discovers in this conversation.
0: Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Anna Deming, a freelance contributor to this week's show, where I'll be talking to people about diversity in the space industry, and in particular, the international charity Space Pride, and its work for the LGBTQIA plus community in the global space sector. First up, I spoke to Franco Labia, a PhD researcher at the Bristol Robotics Laboratory, which is co-run by both the University of Bristol and the University of the West of England. Franco is also an elected committee member of both the International Astronautical Federation's Iticus Committee for the Cultural Utilisation of Space, and the Space Education and Outreach Committee, and is now also the founder of Space Pride. So I set off to find out a little about why they set up the initiative. Hi, Franco. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here.
0: Before we launch into all the exciting work that's going on with Space Pride, mm-hmm. it would be wonderful to hear a little bit more about you. So you're currently working on a PhD in robotics. Yes. How did you end up there? Was it something you were always interested in as a child? or? Uh,
3: so actually, uh, growing up, I, I always uh, was fascinated by robotics. Um, I used to read uh, stories about robots going wrong and taking over the world. Um, And I actually ended up uh, sort of going in a very roundabout way back to robotics. Um, Because in South Africa, I I did an undergrad in a bachelor's of science for six months. And when there I discovered a a passion for space, I actually had to unfortunately leave South Africa because I found I, I wasn't as welcomed as, as uh, other people were. And so I decided to go to the UK to seek out uh, better opportunities and build that community. Um, and whilst there, I, I actually did an undergrad in uh, theoretical physics, uh, because in my mind, the only way to do space was actually to uh, study physics, study astrophysics, the stars. Uh, and I didn't realize there were other fields out there that actually are involved in the space sector. Um, But I got exposure to it um, during my undergrad, and I actually fell in love with robotics uh, when I did my undergrad project in in robotics. Um, And it's uh, kind of always brought me back, and I've actually ended up doing a master's in robotics. um, And it actually came full circle because I was initially uh, very interested as a child um, in uh, swarm robotics. I was interested in how uh, these large groups of robots uh, can work together and, and sort of accomplish something, that was very dystopian in the in the books. Um, but now that's what I do my PhD in, in that's the area. So
0: right, well that sounds intriguing. Tell us more. So this is swarm robotics. Yes. Or is it, what exactly is this? Like a lots of very small robots that can coordinate together to do what exactly? What might they do in space? Uh,
3: so there's different things that they can do. Um, there's uh, a very a growing field of satellite swarms, uh, where the exciting possibility is that they can be used in a decentralised way, uh, so they can respond very quickly to the environment, uh, which is uh, ideal because in space you have that delay in communication, uh, and so that they they can actually keep formations. They can potentially be used for uh, radio telescopes. Um, And the other exciting thing in terms of uh, robotics is actually exploring uh, different planets and different moons is that there's vast spaces and uh, not uh, sort of a lot of technology uh, currently that can uh, sort of cover that area. And so where swarms come in is they can actually um, go out and explore that area and get uh, a great amount of data. And I think it's a big... Uh, sort of area which will unlock a lot of insights uh, in the future of space exploration.
0: It sounds absolutely fascinating. Listeners, if you want to know more, let us know. We'll have a podcast (laughs) on that. (laughs) But um, we're actually talking a little bit more today about some of the things you're doing outside of the direct technological research. When did you set up Space Pride and what was it that prompted you with this initiative?
3: So... uh, as I kind of became more and more exposed to the international space sector, um, like the initially I I felt um, sort of very at home uh, in the international space sector because I, I found the people there were very passionate uh, and sort of open. Um, but as I learned more, uh, unfortunately, I realized that simply wasn't the case uh, for uh, the queer community, uh, which lack any community presence. They suffer a commonplace uh, discrimination in the workplace. And there's no real sort of conversation going on uh, about the queer community and, and the progress that needs to be made in terms of diversity and inclusion. Um, and I thought it was really about time to start that conversation, uh, to found Space Pride to be that, Uh, community platform uh, and to also uh, actually um, do the research where uh, we will find we will actually get the actionable data which can help uh, reduce the discrimination that the queer community face in the international space sector.
0: Right and you mentioned at the beginning that um, you moved to the UK to find somewhere you feel more comfortable as yourself. Is, is, this a, is the LGBTQIA plus community a community you identify with personally?
3: Uh, yes, it is. Uh, so I always knew I was uh, bisexual. Um, and uh, being a, a sort of bisexual uh, man was, was, a, was a, a big struggle uh, sort of growing up because there's a, a lot of sort of um, identity erasure. Um, I'm also non-binary.
0: Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the, the situation with the space sector. Um, as you mentioned it, it, there can be discrimination on the basis of LGBTQIA plus in the workplace. The space industry is, is a big global industry. and Would you say that this is something across the board or is it different for different countries or is it a little bit hard to say unless you've worked everywhere? Or
3: I, I think it's a little bit hard to say, uh, primarily because there is simply not enough um, research that's been done uh, so um, in the queer community a lot of people talk about the discrimination that they've faced in the past um, but there's no clear sort of source where we can point to and look go look this is the discrimination this is what's happening um, so it's it's very hard to say but I think uh, it it does also in a large way depend on the country um, that the, the person is in uh, and um, that's because uh, there's so many different nationalities in the global space sector. Um, and unfortunately, some of those nationalities, the, the, um, there's actually uh, enshrined homophobia in their laws and government. Um, so it's kind of like uh, a big problem to tackle. But it's something uh, which we at Space Pride hope to tackle by actually finding Uh, finding and documenting uh, those uh, cases of discrimination.
0: And as someone who identifies with that community personally, what does it mean to be able to be yourself at work, um, both personally but also professionally? Why is that important?
3: I I think for me it's a matter of, um, well psychological safety actually because uh, one of the most important things i I found uh, in my sort of recent learnings is that uh, running a team you have to have a sense of psychological safety um, and that actually produces more effective results and so when more people are in a position where they can be comfortable with who they are they can actually express uh, themselves um, and Uh, then it actually leads to um, sort of improved efficiency and results in the actual uh, workforce. But also it means that uh, people uh, will be happy to be there every day, will look forward to going there every day, and won't have to worry about hiding a part of themselves, which otherwise uh, they would have no choice but to hide due to fear of discrimination.
0: Yeah, it's important. And... You describe the space sector as a bit of a dinosaur uh, <laughs> at times. Um, is that to say that the space sector lags behind other industries in terms of these issues within each country? Or is it that because of the global nature of the space sector, there are countries where it lags behind? Which,
3: what, uh, what do you mean by I that? I would say that it lags behind just generally. Um, Because uh, compared to other sectors who've actually been exploring and talking about these conversations, uh, they've barely even scratched the surface. They've only just started the the conversation on um, including women in the the workforce and and the different levels of discrimination they face. Uh, They've barely spoken about uh, racism that is still uh, very much a legacy and exists today. Um, and uh, they haven't even begun to talk about um, disability and and neurodiversity in terms of the widespread uh, space community. And so in spite of it being on the cutting edge of technology, it's sort of lagging behind like 20 or so years. (laughs) Sure,
0: yeah. I guess you can have pockets. For instance, we had the... The first disabled astronaut yes. completed their training. Yes, recently. yes. And, and but, um,
3: even even in spite of the, the first uh, disabled astronaut, um, the actual, to make that um, program happen uh, at the European Space Agency, um, the director at the time was actually contacted by uh, some of the nation states that they represent um, and was actually told, um, why don't you just, make them sort of partially disabled so to make it easier or like so that they were not actually even though they, there is a big movement uh, uh for uh inclusion in terms of disability uh there's still very much discrimination that exists today yeah,
0: yeah. why do you think that is why do you think the space sector lags behind
3: uh I think in a large way, um, it's driven by uh, the fact that the largest space conference in the world, the International Astronautical Congress, um, it, it's actually held in a different country e- each year. It's been running a long time, but the problem is uh, every year um, it, it changes the country. And uh, in some of those countries, uh, unfortunately, like um, D- Dubai and uh Baku in Azerbaijan, um, you know, there's actual uh, laws uh, that are incredibly homophobic, you know, uh, gay marriage is not legal, and every time uh, such an influential conference, which has sort of uh, 5,000 plus attendees every year, um, is held there, it, it actually means that the the queer community in terms of progress um, sort of it very much uh, lags behind because they have to uh actually deal with uh, a certain level of oppression every time they'd have to uh, attend a conference in such a, a country uh so it's a very difficult issue uh, it's not one with, with an easy solution uh but that in a large way that's part of it and the other the other way is actually um the lack of uh, conversation going on around uh, sort of diversity and inclusion. So whether that's uh, sexuality, gender, disability, neurodiversity, racism, um, it's something which uh, the conversation is only just beginning. And it's something which is important, but uh, it's lagging behind <laughs> other sectors. Yeah. Right.
0: P- p- Clearly, Franco was convinced of the need to campaign to promote LGBTQIA issues as part of the conversation in the space sector at the very least. And they were not alone as I found out when I spoke to some other members of the LGBTQIA community who are working in the space industry. I'm joined by Rini Fandora, co-leader of the LGBTQ working group at the International Astronomical Union. Hi Rini. Hi. Thank you for joining us.
4: Yeah, hi, thank you for the invitation.
0: So we will come on to discussing your involvement with Space Pride shortly. But before we do, perhaps we can find out a little bit more about you. So you're co-lead of the LGBTQ plus working group at the International Astronomical Union. May I ask how you identify yourself in terms of gender and sexuality? So for me, uh, I am a trans woman. You're also a member of Space Pride. Yeah. When did you join and what attracted you to Space Pride?
4: Aha, I was invited to join the Space Pride when we uh, suddenly have our IAU LGBTQ community and then um, we are looking for our strategic partner to work with. I mean, we need to know our friends within the space uh, community, right? Right. Great. And
0: so this is all focused around the space sector, people working or taking an interest in space and astronomy and so on. What attracted you to take an interest in space and astronomy? Uh I think because space
4: is something that I love since I was young. Um, Space is always be inspirational for everybody who look to the sky when you saw a dark sky with full of stars most of people will be wondering what is uh, all the stars about how we can reach there and we need to explore more and human is uh, basically a natural observer and also an explorer we explore everything so maybe on my side i like to explore stars i like to explore space and explore how we can reach certain uh, knowledge through the development of technologies and utilizing space for the economy and for the benefit of human on Earth. And this is really important things because we are now looking forward. It's not uh, for to live in moon, right? On the moon. Uh, yeah, so it can be like uh, a global thing. That soon we will have, I mean, our human on the moon. And inclusion is really important because we want everyone uh, there. We want everybody involved. And we want our community to be a part of the uh, human mission on the moon.
0: Mm. And do you personally have any specific experiences or or thoughts on either the topic of LGBTQ plus being ignored or people with minority genders or sexual orientations not being properly represented or or even discrimination within the space sector that you'd be happy to share?
4: Uh Aha. I mean, currently, it's based on the country where, I mean, the community is living, right? Mm -hmm. So every uh, space uh, community have been tied with their Country's law. Mm-hmm. So the company that they're working for is also tied with the country's law. Uh, mm-hmm. for, uh, if their law is allowed, uh, allowing the LGBTQ, I mean, and accepting them, it will be easier for the community to, I mean, develop in terms of uh, everything in a- every area. But then those who are in the country where the LGBTQ is not really accepted. Mm-hmm. So they will face uh, challenges. Yeah, we have numbers of country uh, on that. So, um, from personally, from my experience, yeah, um, honestly, they I have faced a lot of I mean challenges. Uh, expressing myself. I mean, uh, talking about uh, space, uh, in, in LGBTQ, and it's really important um for everyone to know that. Um, though the right is there, but not everybody understands, not everyone really accepting the right. Yeah, I mean, the right of existence is one thing, but the rights within the community for the LGBTQ.
0: So, for, for listeners who perhaps haven't got first-hand experience of what it's like to have a right, but to not have it acknowledged in that way. Uh, can you give us any specific examples?
4: Um, the specific example, I can share the freedom of expression, right? When it, I mean, certain uh, gender, you can't simply, uh, I mean, express your gender. Let's say like taking a, a trans a woman as an example. In this industry, we're mostly dominated by males. I mean, mm-hmm. originally it's a male uh, industry where rockets, astronomy is started by male, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, woman coming after that, and then we have like a woman uh, for space, a woman for, uh, and then uh, we are fighting for the right. I, I think most of us already watch it. Watch a movie, a hidden figures, where we see when we saw a uh, woman have been treated like that. But now most of the thing is currently, I mean, accepted for women to be involved. And now, for the LGBTQ, those who are, I mean, presented as a trans, we have different issues. And at the same time, those who are transitioning, mm-hmm. right? Ah yeah, that's another process. I mean, I mean, we have a different timeline for the certain uh, people to transition. Maybe they late in transitioning, or when this is self discovery, right? So the process is there. Basically, um, the misunderstanding is we are not promoting the LGBTQ or maybe those who are claiming that we are going to make uh the kids <laughs> like that. But we need to make sure that everyone know that. Um, we are fighting for the rights to exist. I mean to be appreciated I mean to live as what we are. Yeah, that's really important. Thing. When we talk about space, they need to involve in technologies, uh, research and everything. We need everyone to be in because their voice is important and their ideas is, it's all important. So we want everyone in, we want to hear everyone and everyone can contribute to the development of human. Uh, Humanity and civilization uh, on space is really important to be heard.
0: Nor were they alone in their broader concerns about diversity in the space sector, as I found when I spoke to Danisha Satish, a mission design engineer for hyperspectral satellites, who also volunteers as a member of the Space Generation Advisory Council's Diversity and Gender Equality Group, As well as Space Pride. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with the Space Generation Advisory Council, so could you tell us a little bit about what they do?
5: Yeah, sure. So, um, SGAC, or so it is abbreviated, is basically a community where a lot of students and young professionals are under the Ages of 20, uh, 35, and about 18 come together to, you know, create a community where you can discuss anything about space. Um, we also have project groups running, and one such project group is the uh, diversity and gender equality project group. So we basically discuss matters related to. Um, you know, uh, DGE in space and see how we can implement practices that would improve the um, diversity in the space sector. So it's basically a combination of research and as well as like thoughts uh, sharing and idea generation and so on.
0: And what brought you to become a member of the diversity and gender equality group? right space Mm -hmm. to be honest what got you involved with the space generation advisory council altogether might be a good place to start right i think um
5: i realized very early on that there's no unified platform for people for all of all nationalities irrespective of their background to come together and discuss about space and but then During um, my undergrad days, I actually found out about SGAC, and it's such a great platform because it offers, you know, access to voices from across the world, and there's no, like, bias. You get to know about what each person is doing and, you know, contributing to the space sector. And in the Gender Diversity and Equality Project Group, more specifically, I actually joined it because, um, yeah, there were not a lot of women in STEM, uh, when I was studying as well, and uh, during my college days, I was the ve- one of the very few who actually did aerospace engineering. So I just wanted, you know, to bond with people and share my experiences with like like-minded people, and that's how I actually got to know about the uh, project group.
0: May I ask how you identify in terms of gender and sexuality? Yeah, sure.
5: So I'm basically female. My pronouns are she and her, and my
0: sexuality isn't defined. So, yes. And so you're in the diversity and gender equality group. What what is your role there? What does that involve? uh, As I mentioned earlier, there's a fair bit of research going on.
5: Um, In different subtopics, so you could have research about like the inclusion of LGBTQIA+, which is what I'm primarily working on. You could also have like you know discussion around para astronauts, and that's that's some form of like again discrimination and um, there's like a selection bias going on um, while you know you choose astronauts or you know you prepare for analog missions. So there's like different levels of you know. discrimination we all face together and the gender equality uh, and the diversity project group basically addresses all of these differences and you know how do we, you know combat them.
0: As we mentioned before you're also a member of Space Pride so when did you join Space Pride and what attracted you to it? Right so
5: um, I actually joined Space Pride uh, like through the Gender Diversity and Equality Project Group, we have actually done a collaboration with them uh, for a couple of our posts. And we're also thinking of, you know, expanding our collaboration into research and how, um, you know, we could like actually help each other build an inclusive space sector. So that's how I got to know Space Pride. And I felt the um, motive behind it was very powerful and it also like encompassed whatever we were trying to do in SGAC and it did it on a much larger scale like it, the sole focus of Space Pride was to build inclusivity for the you know um, all the LGBTQIA plus groups and but SGAC has a lot of broad objectives and not one sole focus so I think this aligned uh, well with my interests as well and which is how I actually got to you know, join Space Pride. So, yeah.
0: Why do you think it's important to uh, address issues in um, LGBTQIA plus in the space sector?
5: Yeah, I think that's a very important question because people don't realize how personal lives and our professional lives interact with each other. Um, Because if if I believe you're in a closeted space and you're not allowed to express yourself freely, you won't be able to give in your 100% all the time. Um, that would be like a mental block that you have. And it's not like, you know, um, the uh, LGBTQIA plus is like completely different from the space sector. There's obviously people working in every sector. And in order for like the sector to be like very efficient and progressive, it is important to also, you know, realize that people have personal lives and their personal lives play an important role. And the validation and the approval they get can actually build uh, a very um positive workspace and inspire a lot of people to, you know, take up careers
0: in science, which is not traditionally so. How successful do you think Space Pride has been so far? I mean, it might be early days yet. I think
5: as it's gaining momentum, I see a lot of voices and people who interact with it. Like I know has been uh, it has brought about a lot of changes, and especially in bringing the conversation onto the table. Now, you know, that's like a huge first step, actually, because before there was no conversation around these topics and now i think because of communities like space pride we actually have that conversation on the table and a lot of people um, influential people in the space sector are actually you know behind those voices so i think that's a very great first step we obviously have a lot of you know way to go but um, yeah that's like one step that would help us all
0: and you mentioned that these are issues that affect many sectors. Do you see any reason why the space sector in particular needs a focus on yeah,
5: I, I, as I mentioned before, it holds true for every sector. But then I think the space sector has a particular history of, you know, alienating people. Um, it, it all started off with like, um, you know, uh, racism, if I might say so. Like there were always old white men who were always, you know, going and doing the research and actually building stuff and they couldn't like take in contributions of other people who also were interested. And now that's changed a lot actually. And that's like a long way that we've come, but then it hasn't gone fully. And in order for like humanity to progress to other worlds, I think like space is the next big thing that we're all going to do, like explore the cosmos and whatnot. And I think for that we are all. We need all hands on the table. And I think that's why it's particularly important for the space sector.
0: So what are companies in the space sector doing about it? I spoke to Neela Rajendra, Chief Inclusion Officer at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is a leader in robotic space exploration, to hear her take on this situation. It's a new role. It was a, I was hired two,
6: almost two years ago. Uh, And uh, it really entails um, creating and designing our strategy to advance diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, uh, garnering lab-wide support uh, for those efforts and ensuring that we have the resources necessary to drive that work forward, and um, creating uh, mechanisms for um, connection between our marginalized populations um, that are primarily represented through our employee resource groups and our lab leadership.
0: Right. And so, what sort of resources do does this sort of thing require? Yeah. So,
6: uh, one of the first things I did when I got started was to make sure that um, the leaders of our employee resource groups had uh, were paid for their time, so that they weren't being expected to do the work as a volunteer. Because um, the lab formally recognizes that the work of those employee resource groups are beneficial to the lab, and so therefore we shouldn't expect them to be doing it on their own time, but that actually they should they be paid for that work. So that's the type. You know, so some of it is labor resources, so making sure that they get funded for the time that they that they're working um, towards those efforts. Some of it is um, sending uh, folks from underrepresented groups to diversity related professional development conferences. So we recognize that uh, it can be difficult to establish networks and build um, build a community of um, like-minded professionals uh, when you're from an underrepresented group. So being able to send them to those related professional development conferences like OSTEM um, is um, another form of resources that we provide.
0: Great. And what attracted you to the role? Would you say you identify with any of the communities you work with under this role or was it something else?
6: Uh, So I've been working in the space of diversity, equity and inclusion for a few years now. Uh, So prior to joining JPL, I ran a nonprofit and was one of the co-founders of that nonprofit that worked in this space. So it was uh, bringing together behavioral scientists uh, with uh, practitioners in DEI to close the gap between research and practice and actually advance the science of diversity and inclusion. Um, so when I was, when I learned about the role, it was an opportunity. One, I'm a huge space nerd. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs>
6: it is a like way of space nerd everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so The idea to work for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I mean, my, when I had been approached about the role, um, my family had recently just had a watch party. Um, it was an, you know, all across the United States zoo zoom watch party to watch the, uh, perseverance landing. So like it was, a you know, it was a pretty amazing opportunity to even apply, um, sure. let alone be selected and get this job. So, um, so there's that. And then also just, um, you know, I am a believer that, um, it was with particularly within STEM, um, that one, you know, this work is necessary to that. My approach to this work uh, from an evidence based and research based perspective would be um, particularly res- well received in STEM. And so, mm-hmm. felt like um, this was a really great opportunity for me to take what we'd been building from a research perspective and apply it to an organizational setting myself, not just rely on others to take that work and move it forward.
0: And and do you think things have changed much in the space sector um, generally in terms of diversity generally? And then perhaps also specifically for the LGBTQIA plus community?
6: Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think that there was certainly a world reckoning. I mean, I can speak best from a U.S. perspective, but I think I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that there was a world reckoning after the murder of George Floyd. And so the the amount of awareness and willingness and commitment to change um, from a pr- from the perspective of diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility, I think, you know, the the rate of change prior to George Floyd and post George Floyd is significant. Um, obviously, you know, different organizations ebb and flow in terms of their commitment, but. You know, I would say specifically for the space sector, um, I'm really proud that JPL is one of the signatories of the Space Workforce Pledge 2030, um, which um, makes some significant commitments around, from an industry perspective, increasing the diversity and equity uh, for underrepresented groups um, for the industry in the next, how many years we have left? Seven years. Um, and then... Uh, in, and then from looking at it from the lens of the LGBTQIA plus community, I think you have to take a little bit of a longer look, past, you know, to look at the rate of change. Um, you know, I think in the last 20 years or so, there's been dramatic change. And it's from, you know, from a societal perspective, as well as from an organizational perspective, Um, In preparation for our discussion today, I reached out to a few of my colleagues um, who lead our um, LGBTQIA uh, plus ERG or Employee Resource Group, which is called Spectrum. Um, So Amila Kure and Randy Herrera. And Randy Herrera actually just was um, awarded the NASA Honor Award for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Accessibility because of his work Um, over the last 30 years um, in both building Spectrum and getting some major initiatives in place to support that community. And so JPL was one of the first organizations, I think it was the first organizations in the space industry to provide um, benefits for same-sex couples. Um, And that was back in the 90s. Yeah. So he was one of the, he was one of the primary leaders at JPL of the, of the gay community at the time in the 90s to to get that benefit awarded at JPL. Um, and then I also spoke with Emila Cure, who um, has been a prominent leader of this community and actually works as a um, supports my office. He's a mechanical engineer and also supports my uh, my office and is trans um, about kind of modern challenges uh, to this community. And I think you know, um, NASA has done a tremendous job in, you know, sending great signals um, in support of this community. I think that we still have a lot of work to do, you know, particularly in terms of our trans community and ensuring that we have both the intention to support, but also the resources to support. So, you know, I think because we're a federally funded facility, there are just some logistical hurdles that we have to overcome. From you know being able to choose one's um, gender in workday to being able to ensure that the gender listed on your badge is the gender of choice. Um, these are just mechanisms that you know, from a bureaucratic perspective are slow to change. Um, and so, but being, but ensuring that we have open lines of communication with that community to know what's of most priority for them is, I think, the first step. And we're doing that.
0: And you mentioned there are some specific modern day challenges. What's new that's a challenge in this space? So uh,
6: something as simple as bathrooms. So again, some of the buildings are from the 1940s. Um, And having, you know, gender neutral bathrooms um, where uh, people can choose the bathroom that they want to use is important. Uh, And that's obviously a human necessity and yet a major hurdle to overcome because it is so difficult to modernize our buildings. So that's a major challenge. And we're working on figuring that out. And, you know, I'm really proud of the work that our facilities folks have done to, um, to to do as many accommodations as they possibly can and creating those open lines of communication with that community. Um, two is, uh, you know, emails, um, you know, so being able to show your, um, very clear, um, the gender that you're choosing, um, in your communications, um, and making that automated is another hurdle Um, But I think, and also an opportunity, you know, once we do figure that out, I think it'll make it a lot easier for our trans uh, population to be able to very quickly uh, make it clear which gender they want to represent them. The hurdles that that the space sector is facing is that, you know, a lot of the the facilities themselves are incredibly expensive. It's not like we're working in a in a normal modern office building that can be that's easily modernized. You know, these are facilities that are incredibly expensive, incredibly expensive to modernize. And um, the budget to do so is small. We're dealing with, you know, it, our facilities budget is tied to Congress. You know. <laughs> So those are the kinds of hurdles that we have to overcome. And so, um, you know, so the, so the progress in that regard is slow. Um, and fortunately, you know, I think that there is an acknowledgement of that and a willingness to be patient and work with it. But at the same time, we shouldn't have to expect people to be patient when it comes to such human
0: necessities as well. So while progress may be underway to a degree for the LGBTQIA community in the space sector, there's clearly a way to go. I asked Franco how Space Pride plans to tackle these challenges, its specific aims and what else might be on the horizon. How would you describe the charity's key aims?
3: Uh, So uh, for Space Pride, um, I think uh, in a large way, it's summed up by our slogan, which is, we are all made of our stardust, uh, which is, I think, quite a beautiful way of uh, saying we're all human and we should welcome and accept everyone. Um, But our main goals are uh, to create a community platform uh, where everyone is welcome, um, to document actionable data, which can be used to reduce the discrimination that the queer community face. Uh, to actually start the conversation about the LGBTQIA community in the international space sector, and also uh, to speak about it more widely in the global space sector and beyond through education and outreach. Is
0: so, it a small task? <laughs>
3: <laughs> just, a, just a small task.
0: <laughs> so what specific activities has the organisation engaged with so far? And what have you got in the pipeline to try and achieve these aims?
3: Um, So we have three main pillars, so that's research, uh, education and outreach, and community. Uh, So for research, we've actually uh, established an LGBTQIA plus research group uh, with the International Astronomical Union and the Space Generation Advisory Council. Uh, And we hope to actually document uh, the queer experience in the international space sector through this research group and to reduce the discrimination that the queer uh, community faces. Our next pillar is education and outreach. Uh, So we actually have a digital Space Pride letter and artwork which will be on uh, mission to the moon next year. And through that, we hope to share uh, our message of hope and radical acceptance since now really is the first time in our history where we can go into space as one Uh, people with the queer community being a beautiful part of that. Um, But I can't give out too many details at this point, though. Uh, Although we do hope to one day put a a physical progressive pride flag on the moon in some form, and as ridiculous as that sounds, uh, we're inching closer to that goal. Um, And uh, then our last pillar is community. Uh, So through that, uh, we are actually organizing the Space Pride Fashion Gala in Milan next year, at the International Astronautical Congress, uh, which is the largest space conference in the world. Uh, And that really is an out-of-this-world Pride Parade, (laughs) where the vision is to celebrate diversity in the beautiful queer community through art and culture. So a fashion show with the theme of Pride Parade meets space and building on the latest advances in techno-fabrics. And for this, we've actually partnered with a number of uh, fantastic organizations, including Pride in STEM, uh, Cosmica, uh, Universe Space, International Space University, Cumulus Association, uh, European Space Foundation, and the International Astronautical Federation's ITICUS. Sorry for all those names. <laughs> 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 um, and uh, the exciting thing is, we're also going to be have a pres- uh, we're going to have a prestigious panel event and a ceremonial signing of uh, the Pride flag. Um, where um, Nelly Ben-Hayon and Anik Barod have already agreed to be a part of. Um, and we are uh, at the stage where we're looking for sponsors uh, as, and anyone who would like to get involved. So please do uh, reach out to uh, myself or uh, Space Pride if you'd like to contribute. Uh, it's very exciting to see uh, the vision behind the Space Pride Fashion Gala come to life.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does sound like quite an event. Uh, we'll be watching that space. <laughs> um, uh, but this, this, the whole thing has only been going for less than, less than a year. Was it October you said? that.
3: Yes, sorry? so uh, October is actually when I uh, started Space Pride. Um, initially, it all started uh, with me just wanting to do a, a Pride event at the International Astronautical Congress. Um, but uh, when I talked to different people and when I rallied uh, people to, to actually come and join me in, uh, into making this a reality, uh, they actually we actually realize that there are bigger problems to solve, and, that, and that's why we actually formed space pride uh, as a nonprofit.
0: Well, that's all we have time for in this episode.
1: That was Anna Deming in conversation with Franco Labia, Denisha Satish, Rini Fandora, and Nila Regendra. Thanks to all of them for coming on the podcast. You can read more about Space Pride in an article by Anna on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, How Space Pride is Campaigning for Change in the Space Sector. I'd also like to thank Margaret Harris, our producer Fred Isles, and our sponsor Pfeiffer Vacuum. The podcast will be back again next week when I'll be chatting with the award-winning astrophysicist, science communicator, and illustrator Victoria Grinberg. Thanks again to Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Pfeiffer Vacuum provides all types of vacuum equipment, including hybrid and magnetically levitated turbo pumps, leak detectors, and analysis equipment, as well as vacuum chambers and systems. You can explore all of its products at pfeiffer-vacuum.com. Physics World